0: Interesting how the themes that we're going through coincide with the season right now. And I was praying about what to do for this morning, whether we should, because we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together, whether I should do a message along that line, as I have been doing. And I realized that the very next step in what we're learning about worship fits exactly in with where we are right now in the church calendar and our calendars. So I'm going to do that, and then the next time we share the Lord's Table together, we'll go back into teaching about that a little more, at least for a while next year. We've been studying about worship, and from this perspective of John chapter 4, where Jesus talks about true worshipers, those that worship in spirit and in truth, and he says that for such a people, for such a worshiper, God longs for or desires... And so we've been looking over a number of weeks now at God's side of worship and the longing that he has and the desire that he has and the passion that he has for his people to come and worship him. Not just in our private worship at home. That's important. That's really, in reality, that's a re- rehearsal and a practice for what we're to do when we come together. So the Western church, and we're part of that Western culture, we tend to think in terms of individuals that on a Sunday come together But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches us that we're one body and we all are different individuals having different functions. But the purpose of our individuality and the purpose of our individual functions is so we can function together as the body of Christ. That's what your physical body does. And Paul refers to that in several places as an example of that. Imagine if all your organs were just independent and did what they wanted to do. Now, sometimes it feels like they do. But that's called disease or that's called sickness. That's not normal. That's not natural. And you don't function as well when all your parts aren't working together for one purpose. Well, in the same way, his body doesn't function as well and is not as effective if his body parts, which is what you and I are, are functioning on our own independent ways, so God sees us more as one together than we tend to see ourselves. Now, in the Eastern cultures, they're more open to that. They're more accustomed to that. And the proof of it is if you go into a church in, in, Eastern, in Eastern nations or in, in uh, Indonesia and places like that, they actually sit next to each other. <laughs> they don't have to have a blue seat between them and somebody else because they're really comfortable being close to each other. We're, especially in New England, we like our space. I love you but I like a blue chair between you and me. <laughs> and that's part of the way we were raised, but we're going to have to overcome that to some degree. And so we've been learning about worship from God's side, what God is looking for, and the opportunity that we have when we come together to, in a service like this, that God is here, but He wants to manifest Himself to us in a much more powerful and much more tangible way than He's been able to do, and we're holding Him back. And so we've been looking at this because this is a major paradigm shift, a major shift in how we understand things to realize that God has needs, God has desires, God has passions, and that he wants, He's waiting for us to be open so that He can meet those desires in our lives and for us and satisfy the desire of His heart. So we went back and looked in the garden and we saw how God, when He first created this earth, and put man and that woman in that garden, he did it so he could fellowship with them. That's a spiritual word that means hang out together, you know, Be, be together with one another, share things together. And in that garden, they walked with him in his actual glory. In all his fullness, they interacted with him because there was no sin in them. But in chapter 3, of course, they take their lives into their own hands, exercise their own independence, and as a result, they sin and they fall and they're separated from God by that sin, and that sin creates a gap that can only be bridged by one thing, and that's payment of their lives for the sin that they've committed. And we all were born into that sin nature, we were born into that tendency to sin, and then we've seen God's steps to, re, to begin to restore a relationship with man. And we started with a, with a man named Abram because he wanted to form a nation for himself. So he started with a man named Abram. And out of Abram, he brought forth a nation of Israel. And then we saw that God brought that nation down into Egypt for protection and for provision. That they overstayed their need to be there so they cried out for a deliverer. God brings them out into the wilderness through Moses. And We saw that that the next step that God had for His intimacy with them to be among His people was God had Moses construct what's called the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. And we studied that for several weeks. And the highlight of that, the focus of all that is an inner room in that tabernacle called the Holy of Holies in which there is one piece of furniture which is the Ark of the Covenant which contains literally the writings of God's hands of the law the Ten Commandments written with God's own finger in the inside of that and it's covered with a seat called the mercy seat which is what allowed the priest to go in there into the presence of God's righteous holy requirements and not die because the mercy protected him from the judgment of the requirements of that law and then last time, we last week, we looked into what happened afterwards. <clears throat> that Israel, once they came into the nation of Israel, they stopped trusting in the God of the, of the covenant and started trusting in, the God of, and trusting in the ark itself, the thing, the, rel- the relic itself. And when they did that, God's presence left because they weren't worshiping Him. They were worshiping the objects that were to lead them to Him. And man struggled with that ever since. The ark could actually be turned into an idol because they were using it for their own purposes. We saw that when the glory of God left, what happened is eventually Israel lost possession of it into the Philistines' hands. They brought it back, and King David brings it back into Jerusalem and to establish the presence of God in Jerusalem. And we see as he did that, God's presence came back. And then David wanted to build a temple because he looked out of his beautiful palace and said, this is not right that I dwell as a man in this beautiful palace, but my God's ark, my God's presence dwells in a tent in my backyard, basically. And he says, this is not right. I need to build a place for God that's appropriate for him. But God spoke to him and said, you're not the one to do that. It's a good idea, but you're not the one to do that because you've been a man of war. That's how all of this was settled. It's the next generation that's going to build that temple that I'm going to dwell in. And then we saw last week the construction of the tabernacle, the temple of Solomon in the same spot where David worshipped God at Arunah's threshing floor and bought it for that purpose, which was the same spot where, Moses, where Abraham offered up Isaac as a sacrifice to God at God's requirement. And God came down and became his sufficiency and took his place by giving it a, a ram to offer in the place of Isaac. So we've gone over all that, and when we left last time, we saw this incredible scene in the temple, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where where Solomon gets everything in place, builds this gorgeous temple, which is a magnificent version of the tabernacle that Moses built. And then the ark is brought in, and it's placed under these golden cherubim, and when that's done, they sing praises to God, and a cloud rolls into the temple, and the priest couldn't stand. And then Solomon prayed a prayer of dedication, and the glory of God showed up. And when the glory of God showed up, they couldn't even enter the tabernacle, the, the temple. And then Solomon ends, and this is what we ended with. In chapter 7, he ends by consecrating it as a place where when things would come go wrong, when they would have need as a nation, when they would be under attack as a nation, he consecrated that as a place that they could come and expect to meet with their God. And we ended by talking about, do we have that place? Is that perhaps what God wants this sanctuary to be? I know God will talk to you and he'll meet with you where you are in your home. He he lives inside of you. But there's a much greater power when his people come together. In the book of Acts, we see that because when they were together in one accord, that's when he was able to pour out his spirit. They were together praying for Peter twice and delivered him. He was delivered out of prison. When they came together, there was a greater power in their coming together. And if there's anything the church needs today, it's greater power than we've had before. And so is it possible Is it possible that God wants to consecrate this place as a place where we know we can come and get answers, where we know we can come and see God move, where we know we can come and allow God to do what He wants to do in our lives and through here to the world that's around us in Providence, in Rhode Island, in Massachusetts, and wherever else God wants to reach through here? Is it possible that that's what God wants to do? I believe not only is it possible, I believe that's what it is. So that's where we ended last time, glorious temple, glorious presence of God. We ended on an upbeat, everything was wonderful, and we're learning about it for what we can do. But there's more to the Bible than that, of course. What happens is Solomon does exactly what God instructed him not to do. He began to accumulate for himself wives, I think it was 700 wives and 300 concubines or the other way around, it didn't matter, he had a mess of women in his house. And the real problem was he started importing foreign women. And when he started importing foreign women, they brought their gods and their idols. And he became very open because he wanted to be tolerant. One of the greatest dangers affecting this nation right now is something that looks so wonderful in its toleration. Of course, we're to tolerate certain things, but there are some things we're not to tolerate. There's things God doesn't tolerate. And God is love. In the name of toleration, another word for toleration is compromise. And once you start compromising, it's a slippery slope that you get onto, and it's very hard to stop. And that's what Solomon did, the wisest man maybe that's ever lived, and he fell into sin and idolatry, because he accumulated things for himself and began to put his trust in the things that he accumulated and began to, to worship other gods through his wives. So we see the wonderful book of Proverbs, which is the wisdom of Solomon, under the anointing of God. And then it's followed by a book of Ecclesiastes, which is the best wisdom man can come up with apart from the anointing of God. It ends in the basic the theme through it is vanity. What's, what is this worth? What does life really amount to after all? It's just vanity. You live and you die, and that's basically it. That's where Solomon ended up, a man who brought the presence of God, the glory of God into the tabernacle. So things began to happen. It began to go downhill. After Solomon's reign, when he died, his son took over because his son wouldn't listen to the elders and listen to the young people, the young men that gave him advice. The kingdom gets divided into two kingdoms, a northern ten tribes and a southern two tribes. And what happens in the process is the ark just kind of disappears. We don't know what happens to the ark. One thing we do know is there was a revival in the southern kingdom under a king named Josiah, and he brings the ark back into the temple. So it was around, he knew where it was, or maybe they discovered it, but it wasn't. My point is, it becomes, begins to lose some of its significance because they, again, go back into idolatry. And so we're, this is where the whole history of it between now and basically the end of the New, uh, Old Testament is that the ark is basically lost. Somewhere around 500 B.C., the, the southern kingdom which, in which Jerusalem was located, falls to King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire. And he comes in and he takes everything that's in the tabernacle and the temple, back into Babylon. He takes it with him, but there's, there's some reason to believe. Jewish historians and the books of the Apocrypha tell us that, that um, and it may well be true that Jeremiah, before it fell, bought a piece of land and took the ark and buried it there but the reality is nobody knows where it is. The Bible doesn't tell us where it is. So in terms of God's revelation, we don't know at this point. But I want to show you something. So that's kind of the transition to where we are right now. Jeremiah chapter 3, before we leave the the Old Testament, God makes a promise through this Jeremiah. We're going to look in verse 14. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I I am married to you. Now, this is written right at that point where Israel has already been destroyed and the southern nation is about to be taken into captivity. "'Return, O backsliding children,' says the Lord, "'for I am married to you. "'I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, "'and I will bring you to Zion.'" In other words, I'm going to bring you back. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and with understanding. And then it shall come to pass that when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, shall it, not, it shall not come to mind. In other words, the ark that you've worshipped, the ark that, you've, you, that, you've, that was my presence among you, you're going to come a day where you're not going to need the ark. Because all the ark did is allow God's presence there. It was not God's presence, obviously, because there was a large period of time when they had the ark, but they didn't have God. And God's telling them, you're going to have a day when when you're going to increase and be multiplied, and they'll no more say the ark of the Lord, it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember, nor shall they visit it and be made anymore. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. In other words, I'm going to physically come down and reside there myself. And that's looking towards the end of Revelation, where God says, I'm going to come down, and that's ultimately where we're we're heading in this study. God's going to come down and physically dwell among us. But he can't do that yet. He can't do that yet. All right. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 7. So the ark disappears. After the captivity, the period of captivity, 70 years, is over, there are several groups that begin to return. Ezra is a scribe, he's one of them. Zerubbabel is another that comes and some prophets come with them. And they, over a period of time, build a new temple. And, but the ark's not in it because they don't know where it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a shallow, weak replica of the temple of Solomon where the glory of God was present. Ezekiel prophesies about a temple that's coming, and we'll talk about that later because I think that... Is somewhere where we're headed. But now there's this period of time when, there's, when you've got two nations. The northern nation just quickly goes into idolatry and after about 150 years, they're just destroyed. They're, they're the lost tribes of Israel is what they're known as. The southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they last about another 150 years. And eventually they fall into idolatry and they're taken captive by the Babylonian empire by Nebuchadnezzar. And they're kept there for 70 years and then brought back. All through that time, there's prophecy about one coming who's going to deliver them. All through that time, there's talk about a Christ in the Greek, but a Messiah in the Hebrew language, which means an anointed one that's going to come from God. Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign that he's not forgotten you. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, which has to be supernatural. A woman that's never known a man becomes pregnant with a child. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God living with us. That's what we're talking about. In the garden, God dwelt with them, walked with them. But after their sin, He couldn't do that any longer. So He had to come back and be with them in very watered-down forms. And we're studying the progression of where God's able to come in a more tangible way by little increments, by small increments. And now there's this period of time when there's no evidence of God's presence. There's a voice that speaks every once in a while to them through their prophets, but that voice gives them encouragement that there's coming a day when this, when this uh, exile is over. There's coming a day when all this bondage is over. There's coming a day when God's going to do what He's always wanted to do. He's going to come back and He's now going to dwell among us. Not in a tent, not in a t- temple, but He's going to dwell among us. Behold, a virgin shall conceive... And she shall bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, God living among us. Go to Luke chapter 1. I told you this is appropriate at this particular time. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, an angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. This is the virgin that we just read in Isaiah. Betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, "'Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women.' And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, saying, Consider what matter of greeting is it? What does he want? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, the tradition was that the father named the son. And in this case, that's what's happening. Because the father of this child, we're going to see, was not Joseph, because he's not had relations with her. The father of this child is Jehovah God Himself, and so He is naming His Son. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And when Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Because I don't know a man. I've never had relations with a man. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. In other words, you're going to become pregnant through the Holy Spirit. He's going to do in you what your husband would have done if this were a natural child. Therefore, the Holy One who is born of you will be called the Son of God. Now look at what's happening here. The next step in our study, God's not satisfied with just having a people that belong to Him. God's not satisfied to be able to dwell in a measure in a cloud and a pillar of fire over a room in a tent where only one man can come in once a year. He's not satisfied with that. He's not satisfied with dwelling in His glory in the temple of Solomon because He's still shut up in a temple. He still can't reach out and touch people. And so the step that God's waiting for, it's not the final step, but the next gigantic leap of God's, satisfied God's desire to be a, among His people and to relate to them as God says what I'm going to do is I'm going to become one of them. And God didn't cheat to do that. He didn't just poof show up as a man. He entered this life the same way you and I entered this life. The seed of our father was conceived in the womb of our mother The combination of those seeds produced you. God said to this woman who, this is why it was so important that she did not know men, that she was a virgin. God said to this woman, you're going to be conceived and you're going to carry in you literally the Son of God. And she's saying, how can this be? I'm pure, I've never known a man. He said, because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And he's going to conceive in you the male seed into your womb. And you're going to supply the female part which provides his flesh. So his flesh came from his mother, but his spirit came from his father. So he could be born and wear the flesh of man, but have the spirit of his father animating him and giving Him life. John, the gospel writer, talks about this. Let's go over to John chapter 1. Amazing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now let's stop a second and talk about what the word, Word means. (laughs) Everybody follow me on that? It's the Greek word logos. There's two main Greek words that are translated word in English. This one, logos, means the complete expression of an idea, a concept, or of a person. It implies the full communication of a person's character, of a person's nature, of a person's will. And it's not hard for us to understand because in the beginning was God, the Father, the source of all things. And with Him, we're talking about before He's born in Bethlehem, and with Him was a complete expression of Him. That's not hard to imagine because you'll look at your children and say, they're just a chip off the old block. There's still times, you know, I'll look in a mirror or I'll say something, I'll say, that's just what your father was saying. Especially the things I said, I'll never do what he did, or never say what he said. And they still come out. And the older I get, the more I look and see, my goodness, that's my father looking back. Why? That's not shocking, is it? Well, in fact, it would be shocking if it wasn't. It's the most natural thing that my flesh is a reflection and expression of my father's flesh and my mother's flesh combined. Isn't that what we do with babies? He's got his mother's face and his father's feet. (laughs) We're looking for the pieces that match where they came from. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And just in case we get confused, and the Word was God. He was all God. He was in the beginning. So now we know this Word is a personality. He's the Son of God who's always existed. In fact, if you study it out, creation was done through Him, was done by the Father through the Son. The Son was given responsibility over the creation. So when something had to be done to straighten it out, the Son was the one responsible for coming to do it. I want you to understand this. This is what's happening here. This is John's version of what Gabriel just told Mary. Chapter, verse 14 says, and the word, look, go, listen, I'll go I'll look at it. I want you to see this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means tabernacled. Took up residence. Didn't just visit us. Slept, ate, walked, talked among us. And look what the result of that. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten. What's begotten? As a child's begotten. Of the Father. And what did we beheld in Him? He was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. I saw this in my notes when I was going back over them this morning. I'm thinking... What's in Romans 8 about this? Then I remembered. Romans 8. Whoops, I'm too far here. Romans 8, a glorious chapter about what Christ has done for us to deliver us and to set us free. But there's a little line in verse 3. For what the law could not do because it was weak through our flesh, God did. So what the law could not do, it couldn't make you righteous because the law required you by the effort of your flesh to be perfect, to never fail. So what the law could not do, God did for you. And how did He do it? Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, let me explain that to you because that can be confusing. There's people that have taught error out of that. He was all flesh. I mean, the flesh He had was just like you or mine. We know it bled because when He was pierced, He bled. What's the likeness of flesh, the difference between His flesh and your flesh and my flesh? My flesh came through my parents. They were not perfect. They sinned. Their flesh came from their parents. They weren't perfect. They'd sin. Their flesh came from their parents. They weren't perfect. They'd sin. And we could go back and back and back, and we get to one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. But this man's flesh came from a woman, but his inner nature came from God the Father. So he was born in flesh that was capable of sinning, but it didn't have the tendency that you and I have. We understand that. We live in New England. You buy a car, you buy a new car, you get it out on the highway, you go down the highway. You know, I don't recommend you do this for long, but if you take your hands off the wheel, it'll track straight. Why? Because the wheels are in alignment that the manufacturer designed for it. But if you drive around, and I hit a pothole yesterday. If you drive around in the England very long in the winter, boom, you hit a pothole. You may park a little too close to the curb, you do this. And what happens now? Those wheels that were designed to be aimed straight are a little bit out of alignment. The result is if you go down the highway now, they're always pulling you towards one side or the other. There's a bent to the wheels. I don't mean they're bent, but there's a tendency to those wheels to pull you one way. So you've got to fight to keep pulling them back. You and I were born in flesh that was out of alignment. In the garden, they hit a massive pothole. And we go to church and we get our wheels realigned, but then we go back driving on the streets of New England again. We go out into life and they get knocked out of alignment again. And while they're out of alignment, we've got to fight to overcome the tendency... That's why we've had power steering. That's the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's the power steering to help you overcome. Okay? Jesus' version of the flesh came right out of the manufacturers, right, out of the, right off the assembly line, perfectly lined up. He was capable of sinning. We're going to see that in all ways, but he didn't. So when it says in the likeness of sinful flesh, what it means is he had flesh just as much as you and I do, but he's had a head start because he came without flesh that was the tendency to sin. Now, if he'd started sinning, his would be just like yours and mine. That's what this is talking about. Okay. But the point is here. God came to the earth taking on flesh. Hebrews chapter 1. Now you and I can't, there's no way we can begin to understand. When we get to heaven, we'll probably have a a small understanding. You and I cannot begin to understand and appreciate what a step down that was. To step out of heaven, to step out of being the second person of the Godhead in all the glory and to take on human flesh, You understand that the only thing in you that tires, the only thing in you that gets you in trouble, the only part of you that you gotta work with and struggle with over and over again is your flesh. He'd never done that. He'd never worn flesh. He didn't never have to deal with those things. But he put them on. Philippians 2 says, we're to have this same attitude. Who did not he did not regard equality with God. That's where he was. He was equal with God, something to be held on to. But he humbled himself. He emptied Himself of all His glory, all of His power, all of His own innate glory to take on flesh. He humbled Himself. The word is kinesis. It means to empty Himself out. He emptied out of all the attributes of being God in terms of His power and His glory. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been shocked when Jesus started doing miracles at 30 years of age because they would have seen him with a glow about him, a halo around him. He would have been little Jesus walking around with awe about him and all that they couldn't have stood up in his presence. But he gave all that up. He let it go. We know it because in John chapter 17, he asked God to restore it to him. The glory that I had with you before, restore, return it to me. So he laid it aside so that he could take on human flesh. Now imagine that. God! God! saying, I'm going to become one of them. With all the limitations, all the frustrations, all the stuff you and I have to deal with, he said, I'm going to willingly take that on. Hebrews chapter 1 will begin to tell us why. God, this is again John giving His version of this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to His Father, to the fa- our fathers, that's Abraham, Isaac, the, our spiritual fathers, by the prophets. So God's spoken to us before, but He's spoken through men and, and women, prophets and prophetesses. Has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. Now when you speak to someone, that can be by words, it can be by action. So there are other ways of speaking or communicating than just by words. In these last days He has spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed heir over all things, through whom He also made the worlds. Talking about the Son now. Who being the brightness of His glory. The brightness of His glory. That word literally means an outshining of His glory and the express image of His person. So this one that God spoke to us through, the Son, was an exact, re- re- exact replica of the Father. And there were times that glory was there because he goes up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John and goes to talk to Moses and Elijah and they saw him in all his glory. And the moment they wanted to enshrine it in a, in a, in a little tabernacle there, it disappeared. And he just returned to them in His human flesh. So in times past, God's spoken to us through prophets, through men and women of God. But in this time, God's spoken to us by putting His Son among us. And you'll see why. In a few minutes. When He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Now, why did God do this? Why did God take on flesh? Well, let's go to chapter 2 of Hebrews and we'll see part of it. Verse 14. Inasmuch as the children, that's you and me, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. So he decided the plan of God was that his son would come to this earth and become a man, share in the same flesh and blood that you and I share in that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So the first reason he took on flesh is because in order, to be, in order to redeem mankind, the penalty for sin is death. Well, that's kind of counterproductive if the reason he wants to save us is so he can have us, but the only way he can have us is if we die, if we're killed, then... He's paid the price, but he can't have us. So, God came up with a plan that it says in the Bible was so glorious and so grand that the the principalities and powers and the rulers couldn't imagine God would do something like this. That God Himself would take on flesh. And the, re one the first reason God took on flesh is because now, as a man, he could legally die. Remember, I told you that when they, in the garden when they sinned, the reason God evicted them from the garden was because there says there's one more tree I told them not to eat of. And if they eat of that tree, they're going to have eternal life. They're going to live forever. And here's the problem if they live forever, they can't die. If they can't die, nobody can substitute for them in death and pay the price that's why Christ could not redeem the fallen angels because once they fell there was no redemption because they're eternal beings they can't die so there's no penalty that can be paid they're eternally lost but God out of mercy said whoa I can't have them become eternal in that fallen state so I've got to keep them out of the garden lest they experience eternal life and then I can't substitute for them and redeem them. It's all an act of mercy and grace and love. And so God says, I'm going to come and live and take on flesh and blood because that flesh and blood can die. Jesus bore a body that could die because he did die. And the first reason he came in flesh is so that he could bear the sins and the penalty for the sins that you and I have committed. He could bear those sins and pay the price for them by his flesh and his blood dying. Goes on to tell us what else he did by doing this. That through death he might destroy the power of death That is the devil. And release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. So the second reason he came was to win back what the first Adam lost. Jesus is also known as the second Adam. The first Adam was created out of God's own, out of the dust of this earth and God breathed into him his life. We talked about that in the beginning. But he, he disobeyed God and turned the authority in this earth over to Satan. We know that because when Satan tempts Jesus, one of the temptations is to give him the authority in this earth. He says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you what you came for. Because Jesus came to win back the authority that God had given Adam because what Adam did is he surrendered that authority to Satan. John 1... Uh, uh, was it 1 Corinthians 4.4? Or 2 Corinthians 4? 2 4.4. 4. So Satan is the God of this earth. That's why it's not acts of God that are destroying people today. It's the acts of the God of this earth who is Satan. And people that think, well, whatever happens, God's doing, they don't understand what the Bible teaches us because this world is in the grips of Satan. And so what Jesus came is to win that back. He couldn't do it unless he became a man just like the first man. But where the first man was disobedient, the second man was obedient. Romans chapter 5 talks about that. And through his obedience, he won back what was lost for everyone that comes to him. So when you come to Christ you're joined to him which means what Colossians 1.13 says you're delivered out of the domain the authority, the rule of darkness and you're transferred over into the kingdom of his beloved son. When you come to Christ you change kingdoms. Though we're in this world we're no longer subject to the authority of the ruler of this world. Well how come he's rampant in my life? Because you let him you don't understand the authority that you've been given when you came to Christ. Oh, this is good stuff. Some of us really need to hear this. So he had to take on flesh to restore what the first one messed up, and he did it legally by having to obey every moment of every day. He perfectly obeyed the requirements of the law, and yet he had to deal with the temptation as you and I do. So that when he came to the end, the one that was killed on that cross was a righteous man under the law. So that when his soul was taken down into hell, as it was, and when the price was paid, God could send his spirit down there to bring his son alive in the place of death. Now we don't have a record of what went on there other than it said he spoiled principalities and powers. And it says he now holds the key of death, hell, and the grave. So somewhere in this process, when he comes alive again in this place of death, he reaches over and takes the keys which control life, death, and the grave. He took those out of Satan's hands. And I'm certain, now we don't know this, but this is what I imagine that Satan demanded, wait a minute, this isn't legal. There's no, I brought you legally here because you died and you died in sin and I legally have you here. But he overlooked the one small technicality that none of the sin, none of the sin that set him there was his own. So that God could now legally bring him alive in that grave and bring him back up out of there. And when he came out of there, Guess where he left the sin? Your sin and my sin. He left it judged down there. Woo! That plan, the Bible says, was so glorious that it fooled Satan. He could not imagine that God would love you and me so much that he would go to that extent to redeem us. But he did. so that he may destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil, who through fear of death kept you in bondage. Let's go over to um, chapter 4. We'll look at another thing he did. Verse 14. Seeing that we have so great a high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's our confession that he's our Lord. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was an always tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what he's saying here is he became, once he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, he became our high priest. Just as the high priest Aaron and then his sons were, 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 were ordained to minister in the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple. If you read on through Hebrews 9 and 10, you'll find out there's a, new t- there's a new presence of God. There's a new sanctuary, but it's in heaven right now. And our high priest, who's not from the lineage of Aaron, he's not from the lineage of Levi, he's from the tribe of Judah, David's tribe. He's now reigning as high priest, because it says in Hebrews, that change from a descendant of Levi to a descendant of Judah signifies a change in the nature of the priesthood. Those priests died. This new priest doesn't die. He's of the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 7. That's why he can sit down. Remember in the tabernacle, there were no chairs because the work was never done? Jesus has a chair sitting next to the Father. He sits in it because his work is finished. It's done. He says, but because that high priest Took on flesh. See, what a priest does is a priest is someone who bridges a gap between two different groups. And when it comes to things of God, the priest in the Old Testament was a priest that bridged the gap between God on one hand and the people on the other hand. The people couldn't get to God unless they came through all the rituals of the high priest. And God couldn't approach the people unless he came through the rituals of the high priest. But those priests were men just like you and I are. They had sin in their lives, so they ended up dying and they had to replace them over and over again. But this priest is a different priest. This is the high priest, and his job is to make intercession for you and me. That's not just praying for us, that's making up the gap between you and your weaknesses and your failures and a righteous and a holy God who's not weak, who never fails, who never flinches, who always does what's right and requires us to do the same, that difference between your weaknesses and the requirements of God are made up by our high priest. Whoever lives to make intercession for you. So look at the next verse. So my point is this. In order to do that, he had to be somebody that's worn flesh. Otherwise, He can't represent you or me. Because He doesn't know. You understand, God the Father doesn't know what it's like to be tired. When you're the source of energy, God doesn't know what it's like to be tempted. It says that in James chapter 1. God can't be tempted. It's impossible to tempt God. The only avenue of temptation, the only avenue of weakness is through this stuff. Our flesh. So, in order to be a faithful high priest, another reason he had to take on flesh is so he could identify with your struggles and my struggles. Let's read on and see what it says. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. It's a double negative, which means we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because in all points he was tempted as we are, yet he didn't sin. So on the one hand, he knows what it's like to deal with getting upset at people. He knows what it's like when people offend you and you want to... He knows what it's like to be discouraged. He knows what those temptations are like, yet he never gave in to them. So, he can know what it's like to deal with it, and therefore he can identify with you and be compassionate. But he also knows what it's like to overcome it, so they represent God's deliverance and power to you. So, we have a high priest who can sympathize, notice that, with our weaknesses, because he knows what it's like to be tempted. So when you go to him and you're frustrated, you're tired, you're discouraged, you want to give up, he knows what those emotions are like. So you have somebody that can identify with you, but you don't want somebody trying to pull you out of a snowdrift who's also in a snowdrift. Your wheels are stuck in mud. Somebody else stuck in mud can't get you out. But somebody who's never, who can get out, who got out of it, they can help you get out of it. Now, why did he do this? Look at this. Let us there come, for, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may have mercy and grace to help in time of need. So he's saying one of the reasons he wore flesh is so he can sympathize with what we're going through, yet he never sinned, so that when we come to him and call upon him as a high priest, he can have compassion on us. Imagine he came out of heaven to take on flesh so he could be compassionate, and understand you. You. Let's go to first John. There's another reason. First John one. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which you've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. What he's saying is the word became flesh, and we handled him. We touched him. We could see him. So one of the reasons we're talking about God's wanting to be with us, God couldn't touch people. He couldn't put his arm around people. He couldn't look in their eyes. He couldn't feel the weight of their head resting on his chest. But God in flesh could. God in flesh could touch people. God in flesh could speak in a way that they could hear directly from Him. God in the flesh could deliver people. Jesus, if you study the Gospels, the two things Jesus did the most was to preach the Word and heal the sick and deliver people from bondage. Twice in Matthew's Gospel, once in the end of chapter 4, the other at the end of chapter 9, it says, "...Jesus went about through all the villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and healing every form of sickness and every form of disease. Finally, God could be among people and touch them. Finally, God didn't have to speak out of a tent or through a prophet. God could go into the crowds and God could touch people and set them free and deliver them from every form of bondage that they were in. God could finally express himself. And boy, did he. Boy, did he! Another reason he came, John 15, 14. I'm going to have to skip some of this or condense some of it. He's preparing to go to the cross and he says something about the Father. And Philip says, Well, Lord, show us the Father. He says, Don't you understand? If you've been with me, don't you realize if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? So Jesus took on, God took on flesh so that we could have a better understanding of what he's like. And what did Jesus demonstrate? Love, compassion, deliverance, healing, freedom. Getting upset at the hypocrites, but loving everybody else. John 17, another reason. Jesus said, starting in verse 21, or 20 and 21, He said, I'm praying this to the Father, not just for my disciples, but for all those that will believe on their word, that's you and me. We believed on the word of Matthew, right? We believed on their words. That they may be one, just as I'm one with them, and they may be one with you. So Jesus came in flesh so that we may be joined to the Father through him. And what we are quoting here, 1 John 1, is basically saying we've touched and handled God. We've touched him. We've heard his voice. We felt his breath on the back of our neck. We felt his hand on our shoulders. When we've been discouraged and dismayed, he's put his arm around us. God's put his arm around us. God's comforted us. When we were out in a storm, panicked, thinking we were going to sleep ship, we're going to sink, and we wake him up because he's asleep in the back of the boat because he knows we're going to get to the other side. We woke him up. He was patient with us. He spoke the words that delivered us, and he said he came so that we might have fellowship with one another and fellowship with God. God, not in a tabernacle. God, not in a temple flesh, a person walking among us that could be touched, that could be handled, that could be loved, that could be that could be respected. God loved them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God's willing to come out of heaven. And become one of you and me so that He can be with us and be among us. How He must love you. How must He much long for us. But What we're going to discover is this is not the end. He's not satisfied to dwell among us. God's not satisfied with just being among us. There's another level we're going to look at next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today as we open your word and we see how much you must love us that you've become one of us. You've taken on flesh and blood to be like us so that you could understand us, to be like us so that you could sympathize with our weaknesses and yet you never gave in so that you might become a merciful high priest. Represent us in our struggles before a God who is holy and righteous and absolute in power how you must love us Jesus by your spirit continue to open the eyes of our understanding that we might truly see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus Father I ask that as we prepare to go from this place shortly that the words that have been sown in our heart today by your spirit would be watered and would begin to grow And you would begin to open our eyes to understand just exactly what you've done for us and how much you love us and care for us. For the grace to do that, we thank you in Jesus' name.